she is not home. Everything he owns is packed into a handful of milk crates. Everything but the saxophone. He tucks the case under his arm and goes downstairs and then towards the East River. This was decades before Williamsburg became a hipster paradise. There were no steel and glass high-rises, no fancy cups of coffee. There was nothing but crumbling buildings on the waterline and the carcasses of abandoned cars propped up on cinder blocks. It starts to rain as he sits on a railroad tie and carefully puts the horn together. The neck is swiveled into place. The mouthpiece twists on as he wets the reed in his mouth. He plays quietly, nothing special. As the rain patters on the weeds around his feet, he stares out across the river at Manhattan. All in one motion, he stands up and runs towards the water's edge and throws the horn as far and long as he can into the pale gray sky. It plunks down and disappears into the dark water. I'm Marco, and this is Songbird. Thank you all for being so very patient as I went about producing the second season. When I had the big idea to go back in time to the 90s and try to tell the story of this very complicated band I played in, I reached out to the other members and I kind of half expected them to say, well, it's a very nice idea, but it's just too much to ask. Instead, Molly, Chris, and Mike immediately said yes. And then the real work began. They say, be careful what you wish for. And well, it's true. I wanted to tell the story really right, not just wing it and not just dive towards the easy, funny moments, but stretch a great big empty canvas and paint just a little bit more of it each week and take our time and do it together. So somehow here we are, songbirds, season two, episode one, and the first chapter of the story of Spitball, all about a song called Coney Island Surfing. guitarist and, and the singer from Spitball, I think I want to start with asking you, how did the band begin? Yeah, I, I, I loved music, couldn't figure out the third chord of Twist and Shout, and was like, I'm going to figure out this third chord, and then finally figured out how to play some music, was playing. Chris was playing drums with my brother, got involved with him, 
friend of mine knew Mike Webb. He just moved to New York City. Chris moved down to the city, and then three of us started playing. I think there's two things that are going through your head when you start a band. It's, um, why should we start a band? And on the other hand, why shouldn't we start a band? (laughs) (laughs) I think in our music you can hear that our influences were bands that didn't know what the hell they were doing. And we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Perfect example is, you know, some of our songs were just stuff that we would be, you know, goofing around about, and we make a song about it, like Lord Loves a Worker Man. You know, it was something you used to say, and I was like, I'm going to make a song about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's amazing what happens when you don't take yourself too seriously. Oh, yeah. Like, suddenly everything accidentally becomes, like, really meaningful. And, and like, <laughs> people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you guys mean. I personally have giant gaps in my memories of my 20s. Who are you again? <laughs> I remember perfectly the day we met. And I'm curious if that one is still in your archives or if that tape has been erased. I- I no, I I mean I definitely remember you coming in and I'm working. I don't there's no specific event uh, horizon, but Mike and Chris and I were, you know, playing around anywhere where anybody would listen to us. And then I guess yeah, we were talking, you know, you had just gotten that saxophone. I was like, "You want to play some music?" You're like, "Hell yeah." And all of a sudden that's when it started. You know, we had no money. We had no concept of structure you know we were just basically flying by the seat of our pants constantly i remember the most ridiculous details baby jake's was the restaurant and i was working for the blue man group building experimental instruments for them oh yeah and i had this weird idea that i knew something about building instruments which is complete horseshit (laughs) uh i was fake it till you make it And you had a guitar that was like in pieces on this very small counter where I was hoping to eat. And I was like, I could help you put that pickup back in. I was completely not lying, but like I didn't know what I was doing. And we just got started talking. And that's when I told you I was a horn player. But Molly, there's one part of that story that might blow your mind. One of the only times in my life I didn't have a horn. And when we agreed that I could like come to a rehearsal and like audition for the three of you, I had to run uptown and buy a freaking horn. And, and, and <laughs> oh, yeah, because you totally were like, I got this, uh, it's like the biggest horn, it's like the big one. <laughs> that is pretty amazing. But all I can say is, like, I ended up buying this incredible rare horn because I walked in the door of that place on that day because you guys wanted me to, you know, audition for you. <laughs> I played that horn a week ago on a session. I would never have that horn if it wasn't for you guys. All right. So now people are listening to this podcast. Yeah, we're amusing older people remembering we were complete idiots. But I just remember Coney Island surfing being like this clear song to me. Like whatever we played in that rehearsal, there's like an idea there that's like really big. So tell me how did Coney Island surfing happen? So Mike and Chris and I, we could barely, I mean, it would be $20 for two hours at a rehearsal space. And it was a constant, and I was the worst because I never had any money. I mean, if you really listen to any lyrics of any song, including Coney Island Surfing, 
they're basically all about drugs and gambling and and just debauchery. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I messed things up for everybody just because I was just such a degenerate. We loved going out to Coney Island. It was very inexpensive to go, kind of a violent neighborhood. Amusement park was like one step up from a homeless shelter, but it was somewhere to go for us. You know, the subway at the time, I think it was a dollar or a dollar 25. If there was some place that was three miles away, I would just walk. But well, for a dollar 25, I can go all the way out to Coney Island. That's amazing. I'm going. And so that's what we would do if we had any spare time. It was just such a pathetic place. The idea of surfing there, it's like you couldn't even put a popsicle stick in the water. And it's like the hypodermic needles would float in quicker than the popsicle stick. (laughs) There was no waves. And when you saw somebody in the water, you were like, what is wrong with that person? It's so interesting for me to hear this because I always thought it was a kind of a romantic song. It's like, oh, I'm going to take my girlfriend and go down to Coney Island. And, you know, it, it paints kind of a rosy picture if you don't understand the words. It was a romantic way to spend a day off. It was just New York at a different time where that was uh, the highlight of the month, you know. So when I think of Coney Island surfing, the immediate thought is that amazing drumbeat that Chris is just, you know, demolishing. Actually, I, I just realized something. I think when I wrote the lyrics to that, we were really wasted. And I think Chris was playing the bass, Mike was playing the guitar, and I was playing the drums. And I couldn't think of anything to sing. Like the next time we rehearsed, we got on our actual instruments, and it was... Uh, it was way cooler with Chris playing the drums. (laughs) And I think this is going to happen to me like a hundred million times as we talk through all these songs. What I thought I knew and what was really the underlying story, they could not be more different. I'm, of course, convinced that Chris just like writes drum parts like this, you know, in his sleep. And, you know, he did write that drum part. The thing is, you're talking about Chris playing the bass. (laughs) That's why it's so... Um, rudimentary is because you know, like he's like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and I'm of course playing the drums, so I'm like, you know, and and Mike's trying to, I mean, Mike's in outer space, you know, and so I'm trying to like sing into a microphone that's like supposed to be connected to a, a drum, and uh, somehow we it was just. There was something catchy about it. We all remembered it. So the next time we rehearsed, which was the next time the three of us could come up with 20 bucks, we kind of were like, remember that thing we were doing? I mean, there were certain songs that I would write at home and then be like, hey, this is what I wrote. And they were always really weird. And they're like, that is not fun to play at all. And uh, I was like, yeah, but it's cool, right? (laughs) And, you know, but then there was stuff that we would come up with together sometimes. And... That is definitely one of them. Coney Island Surfing was just this bizarre, you know, amalgamation of us just being broke, wasted, and, you know, desperate to kind of figure out what the hell we were doing. Do you think that because people called it a surf punk song, what the hell is surf punk? Yeah, nobody knows. Was that something that helped make things more clear to the three of you? I mean, I think I was delusional at that time. I, I thought we were a very elite intellectual bands. <laughs> I had no idea what we were doing, but I thought it was cool. Oh, 
Thank you very much. It's a song called Coney Island Surfing. Going out to Christie. All right, Chris, from the drummer's perspective, mm -hmm. what was the spark that caused this all to happen? I had something happen to me that had never happened to me before in my life. You know, I had played drums, I think I started when I was 14. I was absolutely terrible and played through college and, you know, always had a good time with it. I was living in Portland, Maine, and I met Molly. Molly was uh, related to a friend of mine. And my friend said that Molly's a great guitarist and that, you know, maybe Molly and I should get together and, and jam. And I, you know, I didn't really think anything of it. But, we, you know, we got together. And again, this had never happened to me in my life before, but it was like, bam, instant connection watching Molly play and her watching me play, when she would kind of go off in another direction, I instantly got where she was going. It was just such a unique experience. And we talked afterwards and Molly said that she was moving down to New York City. And did I want to go? I was painting houses. Not much was going on. Summer was ending. I, you know, didn't really have a game plan for what was happening next. I just felt like this is a really fucking amazing connection. Let's do it. Let's move to New York. And of course, you know, you move into an apartment with other roommates. They're probably not going to be happy that some guy is staying indefinitely on the couch. So that started just, you know, kind of a cascade of I needed a job. I wound up at the Strand, which, you know, working at the Strand was great because it really allowed tons of flexibility to play music. I think the spark for me was a live moment when I saw the reaction in the audience and that kind of like gelled it for me like, oh, shit, this is something. For sure. Yeah. I was hopeful. I was generous. I had a little leap of faith. This is worth it. This is something. Right. But it was the audience that showed me, no, 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 this is something. <laughs> you know, even in instances where, like the spiral, you know, you're playing maybe to not a ton of people or, you know, another show that we're playing and people are actually there to see another band. But being able to win people over and maybe at the beginning of the show, no one's really paying attention or they're just waiting for, you know, their friend's band to come on. But by the end of the show, you've got people at the front of the stage who are like, fuck yeah, rock and roll. You know, I saw that happen many times. Quite a feeling. Yeah. I had to find a song to base the first episode on. It just had to be Coney Island surfing. I mean, we called ourselves a surf band. Sure, but okay, fine. Right, right, right. <laughs> yep. Because we're such yep. surfers. Yep. <laughs> now, I've already heard from Molly this crazy story how you were all were playing each other's instruments. Yes. Maybe the background to this and maybe a background to the band is that we always put in a lot of time rehearsing. I, I felt like we really put in a lot of work. So with Coney Island Surfing, I remember we were up at, it was Giant Studios up on like 28th Street or something like that. And it was just a shithole. I remember one time, you know, we didn't have enough money to pay for rehearsal. So we paid for our two hours by plunging their toilet and fixing the plumbing there. Yeah. <laughs> 
but Webb handed me the bass, and I think Molly took over on the drums, and Webb took the guitar, and I just started plunking out this thing. The and then someone yelled, hey. And, you know, we kind of goofed around with it for a little while, but there was a little bit of recognition of, hey, maybe there's something there that we can really do something with this. I put on that surf beat because that seemed to be the way that it was headed. The dun dun And there was always, at least on my part playing the drums, there was always a little bit of effort in each song somehow to give something that people could move to. You know, you remember that a lot of our crowds were, um, were strippers, <laughs> you know? So I think that's probably where some of the beat from Coney Island Surfing came from, too. So it was stripper worthy. It was stripper worthy. You know, that was the <laughs> test. You know, would a stripper dance to it? All right, let's keep going. <laughs> Hello? Thank you. Mike? You're the bass player of bass players, as far as I'm concerned. And Aww. I'm really curious to get your version of the Spitball origin story. There's superheroes get origin stories, but awesome surf punk bands also have origin <laughs> stories. <laughs> oh, that's great. I moved to New York City in 92. I've got a really good friend from college named Mike Quarterson up in Boston. Uh, so I decided to go up there for New Year's Eve. I'm hanging with Mike, and Mike tells me, hey, I, I know this person named Molly, and we met up, I think, on New Year's Day. You know, we're talking music. Molly seems cool. She thinks I'm cool. She's like, hey, when I'm back in the city, I'll look you up. And I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. Uh, sure enough, get back to New York City. Molly looks me up and says, hey, you want to jam? And we met at some studio in the East Village. Or cuts there, and this other dude named Clint, who's a guitar player, is there. We jammed, and it felt good enough to do it again. We kept going, but without Clint. And uh, Chris on the drums, Molly on guitar, and me on bass. I asked Molly this question, and you're really making me want to ask you the same question. Why be in a band, or why not be in a band? <laughs> oh, I'm a band guy for sure. So I moved to New York from L.A. I've never admitted this to anybody. I moved out to L.A. to become a rock star. Like, I wanted to get into a band, but you can't tell your parents I'm moving to L.A. to become a rock star. <laughs> and when I was in L.A., I started writing songs. Uh, I'm writing a, just a variety of songs, but mostly pop rock songs. Oh, Marco, there's so much to this. But um, when I got to New York and met Molly, it was like, Okay, I'm making what I wanted to happen in L.A. happen in New York. You know, when the band starts, you have no intention that it's going to go somewhere. You don't know if it's going to be good. You're literally just jamming to see what happens. There was the fateful encounter, Molly and me, at the counter of Baby Jake's. <laughs> and I was invited to audition. And then there was the famous gig at the Spiral on a Tuesday at 2 a.m. with no one in the audience. <laughs> The guy sweeping the floors. He didn't, like, look up and say, that was cool. <laughs> right. right. I hated those days, Marco, because we were playing at shitty clubs that nobody ever wanted to come to. And we had to draw an audience in order to, like, climb the ladder and get better spots. The whole thing just felt like a scam. They just need to get bands on the bill so that they have, you know, people in the bar buying booze. I felt like everyone in New York was writing a screenplay and in a band. Mm -hmm. Cab drivers. 
everyone. At that moment, I was working at Sony Music. So I was an assistant in the radio promotion department and then moved to be an assistant in the A&R department. And we can talk about that as we go because it's definitely a factor in spitball. But yeah, my life was surrounded by people in music. I ended up at Sony many years later, creative post-production, mostly for Epic. Mm -hmm. But we used to like see each other at those random Sony events <laughs> where like everyone would cross paths. Oh, yeah. So they had the, the business office on Madison, and then they had the studio on the west side. They did lots of events. The, the brilliant thing was they had their own production company. So they would pay their own production company mm -hmm. to make music videos for Sony. <laughs> yes. Like, that sounds like money laundering. <laughs> totally. Actually, it's exactly what it is. <laughs> How could they go out of business? I know, It's man. impossible. Oh, man. It was a mess. <laughs> Well, the best perk of working there was free tickets to concerts and free CDs. I got to go to some of those um, sessions at West 54th. Mm -hmm. Iggy Pop, 10 yeah, Feet Away. those are good shows. Oh, I saw Jeff Buckley uh, do the Columbia Radio Hour. Oh, Marco, this is great. He opens real slowly with Dream Brother and then just does a magnificent version of it. And at the end, I shout out, play it again. And and it's captured because they... they they issued it as Peyote Radio <laughs> Theater, so I'm the knucklehead in the back. Chris told me this story I had no idea of. You passed him in a hallway, and he blew you off. Yeah. And they were pissed off. He's already too cool for everybody. Oh, man. That's the moment I fell in love with those guys. I didn't know Jeff at the time because I wasn't working with his A&R guys, but I had seen Jeff around Columbia. And he was up there rehearsing, and I saw him, and I was like, hey, Jeff, I work at Columbia. What's going on? And he totally ignored me, was cold. I think it was because he felt like they were spying on it, like I was a spy. But as soon as he blew me off, Molly and Chris were like, should we go kick his ass? <laughs> and I was like, no, that would be a bad idea, but thank you for even thinking and asking. We're all real people. All right, we're going to talk about a specific song here. I definitely see Coney Island Surfing as like the signature, well, that's who those guys are. The driving force of this song is the drum part. If I ask someone from the audience to say, how does Coney Island surfing go? They go, boom, chicka, boom, chicka, boom, chicka. Oh, totally. They're not going to go, meow, 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 meow. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I love that that's Molly. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. Because So when we all went back to our own instruments, we started to play like how we play. I don't remember when Molly came up with that guitar line, you know, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. In listening back to it, I was mm -hmm. like, oh, my bass line is echoing that. So, you know, she's playing it really high. Do -do 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 and I'm playing. Do -do 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 and I never realized I was just following her. The beats, everything in that. Yeah. But the bass is bouncy, and you got that great guitar line. So, Honestly, Mike, you are the quintessential non-typical bass line person. I mean, I know that the beats are there and you're in the pocket, but there's something somewhere between melodic and bouncy, but it's so tasteful. I saw that Rick Rubin thing with Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah, I saw it too. And I am not a Paul yeah. McCartney fan, but I was like, shit, yeah. he is a good bass player. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, he really is. In the Mike Webb category, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not bullshitting you. I'm not bullshitting you, man. No. I play with a lot of bass players who are just like, you know, they're in the pocket. They're all good. 
hearing that other thing you could do, but also be in with the drums, that's really rare. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I got to tell you, I strove to be good and to play interesting parts. But I, I think what's best about my bass playing is that I listen. So I always was with or cut. Like that was requirement number one. If his, if his kick drum is going, I'm playing along with that. But there's also a melody and there's a guitar part and there's whatever I want to do, you know? And so I, I thank you for saying that because I think I kind of pulled from all four of those things. I think people take bass for granted as like the boring instrument. Oh, amen. In, in life, you have to like wash your clothing and take out the garbage. <laughs> How much of your life is taking out garbage and doing laundry? You're like the instrument in the band that's the life parallel to that. Oh, totally. But you turned freaking throwing out the trash into something that's not normal. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this, man. I was in a college band called The Bastion of Silliness. The way we formed was we were in a house with five guys, right? So one guy was a really good guitar player. One guy was a bad guitar player. I was the medium guitar player. So who switched to bass? The medium guitar player. <laughs> because the bad guitar player needed the good guitar player to, you know, help him along. And that's when I started playing bass, and I just was kind of a natural. I was a rhythm guitar player, wasn't a lead, so rhythm was always part of it. Oh, those bad guitar players. <laughs> he was funny, though. His, his name is Karl Marx, and I love him to death. He was funny as hell. You guys are drunk. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. How about that baseball season, huh? All right. Uh, this one I'm dedicated to my lovely old lady. This is called Coney Island So Fast.
That was an intellectual song. That was a that was an elite intellectual. They should they should make me an honorary doctor. <laughs> no I, Nobel Prize. Nobel very, Prize. Very, very delusional. Very delusional. There's a lot of delusion happening back then. I loved when you guys yelled "Hang ten. <laughs> well, yeah, that was uh, Chris and Mike. <laughs> None of us know anything about surfing. I know that I tried <laughs> to say hang 10 in the trailer introducing all this and I sounded like such an idiot I couldn't do it. But it's kind of like it was like an ideal but kind of it's this fantasy world in your life. For us <laughs> that was surfing. <laughs> like we thought like oh man how cool would that be? We had no idea. I, I, I think none of us even were more like cats. We didn't even want to get wet the origin story of so many bands and the way they come together, it's just an alignment of planets. If someone didn't raise their eyebrow or stick their neck around a corner, it might not have ever happened. And mm. I definitely felt like when I started playing with you three, it was like, who are these people? And I knew a lot of people in the neighborhood, but I didn't know you three. I remember one time we were all walking over from the Mars bar with all the regulars. We were playing that uh, festival on First Avenue and First Street and, uh, you know, the block party. And it was just like the amount of people that were there, you know, just because we had, like you said, two people at a time, one person at a time. You know, all of a sudden you got four people and they bring one friend. And that's basically all of a sudden it just was a... I mean, talk about surfing. That was a wave of momentum. It's like just this kind of tiny little wave. And I mean, I don't know anything about surfing, uh, you know. But at the same time, I imagine that way out in the middle of the ocean, there's just a tiny ripple and it just slowly gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it comes into a shore. And I sometimes think that that's what we had going on. And, you know, very similarly, by the time it did hit shore, it was just... <laughs> A complete mess, crash, tsunami of mayhem. And I mean, that's the only way you can describe some of the stuff that we went through. And that's our first clumsy attempt at time travel. Memory is so many things. A filter, a lens, a container, a trick. A chance to do it all over again. But maybe the real question is, can we ever really 
go back. Can we put the toothpaste back in the tube? I don't think so. But we can stand where we are and look all the way back. And we can remind ourselves about so many things and laugh if we're lucky. There is joy in answers. And this looking back has provided all four of us with some of that wonderful, strong medicine. I wish the same for you. All right, songbirds. This is the place where I tell people where they can find us. We're on all your favorite podcasting platforms, and even ones that you've never even heard of. Or you can just go to songbirdpodcast.com. That's the only place where you'll find the show notes. And I've got a scandalous spitball flyer there for this one. If you're interested in the music I make, just search for Martin Ruby. That's the band name on Bandcamp, Spotify, iTunes, and all the rest. Or just go to martinruby.com. I have a new album coming out in January. It's called Jacob and the Angel. And shout out to my friend, Polly Shaddle, for all your advice and wisdom in helping me find a way to tell this story. Thanks, Polly. Next time on Songbird, the world's most terrifying bathroom, the D-Train, and a girl named Rachel. Thanks for listening. Songbird is produced by Bittersweet Content.